Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are in the studio by ourselves this morning, and then we have a special guest on the phone. I'm going to let Tom introduce him because he is a plant pathologist. We have Carl Bradley, who is with the University of Kentucky with us, and I will let him introduce himself a little bit more, probably after Jason asks his normal crazy, wacky question. Well, Carl, no, that's fine. That's fine. Carl Tom gave me a little bit of your track record history, and he said that you were basically working your way south, that you had worked in North Dakota, and then you'd worked in Illinois, and now you're in Kentucky. And it looks like you're running away from something, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> my, my question is, when he said North Dakota, I thought, ooh, that's what I want to know. So what is the coldest temperature that you ever experienced in North Dakota? The coldest temperature, um, I think it was probably right around minus 40, which when you get to minus 40, believe it or not, it doesn't matter if you're talking about Fahrenheit or Celsius because it's, that's where they both meet. <laughs> it's minus 40. Yeah, I think it was, it was real close to that. Needless to say, I didn't go anywhere that day. I stayed inside. But you, that's a good observation that I have been kind of heading, heading south. Actually, it's really more of a circle, though. I'm so I'm from southeastern Illinois originally. Okay. Where I work now at the, at University of Kentucky, I, I don't work in Lexington. I work at a research center, which is over in Princeton. And Princeton's just probably about probably a little closer if you didn't have to cross the river because you can only cross that certain places. But since you got to cross that river, it's just about an hour and a half from where I grew up. So yeah, kind of almost like a big circle, I guess, which which uh, led me a little bit further south. So yep, negative forty just boggles the mind. The only thing I can think, Tom, is thank the good Lord for the state of Mississippi. All all <laughs> I will add is is the last winter I was at Indiana University, which would have been the winter I graduated, the winter of nineteen ninety four. It was negative forty as a wind chill. And I said, yeah. I am done. This is it. I got to get out of this part of the country because this is just, it's too cold. It's just, snot freezes. Things are not pretty when it's that cold outside. And fresh flesh freezes like it. I don't remember what the temperature is. Negative 20, I think. I've only been to North yeah, Dakota you- one time. And it was cold, but it, it was maybe in the 20s. It was cold relative to what it was when I left down here that week. It wasn't that, that cool down here. But negative 40, no. <clears throat> <laughs> no <I'm kidding>. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, that. There, there's not enough fire in the world to warm up negative 40. <laughs> it's a complete recalibration of your body once you move up there. It's. Um, I think I moved in March, and um, I remember we were just moving in, and the mailman came up, and it was like, it was like single digits above zero. And the mailman said something like, it's a nice day today. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it is. <laughs> but but, but as, it, as it turned out, uh, it actually was. Go figure. <laughs> well, and everybody should know that there is a, there's a big reason we have Carl on. One, I think, and I thought about it this morning and Jason talked about it. I've probably known Carl almost 20 years <clears throat> because we have some friends that are some similar friends and we all kind of work together a bunch of us it's at the university of georgia 
And then uh, they knew Carl. But Carl, I would consider to be pretty much the expert right now on fungicide resistance within the organisms that affect soybean. And I know that you have continued that work at the University of Kentucky, and I rely on you for a lot of information. So I think we're going to cover as broadly as we can fungicide resistance. And I think you can give our listeners a really good perspective on, just to start with, what is it? How does fungicide resistance develop within those pathogen populations that we attempt to manage with a fungicide? First off, Tom, thank you for that that nice introduction. I'm not sure I, I agree with everything you said there, but <laughs> about me, <laughs> but uh, I uh, I appreciate that, and um, I think it's a great topic to talk about for sure because it's it's something that's happening and um, uh, and it's important. And you know, when I first got started on this project, it, it wasn't really happening in soybean, and I was talking about it like it could happen, and and it seems like nobody really cares until it actually happens. So I guess there's now that it's happened, there are, there are a few more people that do care about it. So how does this work? Yeah, that's a great question. It kind of comes down to two components when you kind of boil it down. Uh, you've got your your pathogen population, and then you've got uh, your fungicide, right? So if you think about the fungicide, things that kind of can move towards fungicide resistance a little quicker would be would be things that have like single single site of action, single modes of action. Just that fungus is or fungicide is just acting in, in one certain site of the target organism. And so when we just have one particular site it's working on or one mode of action it's that's used utilizing, that's usually a little bit easier for that pathogen to overcome it. So over on the pathogen side, it really, I think that one of the major things is how diverse, how genetically diverse is that pathogen population. And uh, and we have some that are very diverse. Um, I got started in on this work, uh, when, when at least on soybeans, when I, when I came to the University of Illinois back in 2007 and started working on um, the frog eye leaf spot pathogen, Sarcosprosogena. That, as it turns out, that pathogen is pretty diverse. It's, it's really genetically diverse. Almost, almost, almost every single isolate is, is different genetically. And so you have this pathogen population, it's got a lot of diversity in it. And, um, then when you, when you apply the fungicide, you you start selecting out these individuals and some of them might, might have a little bit of, um, differences in how sensitive they are to the fungicide. So that's kind of how it happens. Some people think that that fungicides cause these mutations or these you know these shifts in nucleotides, but they don't. Um, that's just sort of the thing that selects them out. The mutations or the subs- the amino acid substitutions that uh, that cause these, in some cases, cause fungicide resistance. That just happens naturally within the fungus population, and once you start spraying that fungicide, you select out those individuals, and that's. That's what's happened. And of course, we've had a lot of fungicide applications, and that's that's probably one of the major drivers here. Is is you know spraying fungicides on soybean wasn't really a thing we did 30 years ago. Not very often, at least. We didn't really have that many products labeled. But nowadays, it's it's a lot more common, and um, we see that selection pressure just very highly active. And so that's kind of why we're dealing um, with a lot of fungicide resistance issues nowadays. Carl, I think everything you just said, if you took out the words pathogen and fungicide and stuck in weed and herbicide, it's exactly what we've always talked about with herbicide resistance, 
particularly the fact that you said that the fungicide doesn't do it. It's just basically finding the needle in the stack of needles, right? That resistant individual in the case of a plant or the isolate or whatever word y'all is appropriate for for y'all's stuff. It just finds it and then removes all the ones that are susceptible and then that one reproduces and it gets to be a bigger part of the population or percentage of the population and the problem increases from there. Well, and so much of that gets lost in the messaging because I think there have been a lot of really good science projects where people have gone out and tried to find or they've not really been looking for fungicide resistance, but they all of a sudden determined, well, this is interesting. These native populations of whatever fungus already have those specific amino acid substitutions or a slight uh, genetic modification or mutation that allows them to overcome that particular fungicide mode of action or active ingredient. So that's, <clears throat> we don't spend much time talking about that. I mean, for a lot of reasons, because it, plant pathologists kind of get lost in the minutia sometimes. So biology is biology, right? And so um, that's, I, you know, it seems like, um, Jason, I think you have an advantage sometimes because it seems like the farmers I'm around, they just really hate weeds, you know? It's like, they they don't like diseases, but they hate weeds. And so I, I think I've always um, kind of used the herbicide resistant weed example uh, to kind of help farmers understand, you know, the importance of, of, of this whole biological thing that can happen with, with lots of different organisms, including, you know, the fungi that cause diseases. So I've used the herbicide example several times, and I think that's, that's uh, helped out because that's, obviously a huge problem in, in uh, you know, your world that you work in as well. Well, it's out of sight, out of mind, Carl. They can see that herbicide resistant weed because it's sticking up case of soybeans. It's sticking yeah. up above their canopy late in the season and see yeah. it when they drive by. Whereas in this case, a, a resistant fungus or even a resistant insect to maybe a lesser degree, maybe a resistant insect would fall somewhere between the the resistant fungus and the resistant weed, you can't see it. So uh, you yeah, don't, yeah. you really That's don't the, know yeah. what the effect is. If it, if it doesn't make a big showy symptom, then you really don't know what the effect is until the, the yield numbers come back. I think in some cases, and probably what we'll discuss here as we move through a little bit more of this is, I think we've started to pick up some fungicide resistance within some organisms that weren't necessarily things that we're, we were keying on. So you're off target yeah. organisms. We did a good job managing frog eye with fungicides or we, we tried to, and we created some resistant populations that are out there in, in nature. What did we do to the rest of the organisms that were within the, the, soybean canopy as a result of some of those applications and that i you know that's not necessarily a question but i think that's a good place to really start absolutely i think one of the things you might be kind of talking about is is like the septoria brown spot pathogen that's uh, i mean obviously that's septoria brown spots um it's a disease of soybean and it's it's one that at least everywhere i've worked it's pretty common um we see it early in the season but it, the soybean tends to kind of outgrow it because it stays down the lower canopy. And we don't usually see that pathogen, at least Tom, places I work, it may be different in Mississippi and, and further south in Kentucky, but uh, like the septoria brown spot pathogen is usually one that, uh, you know, it may, may kind of make a surge towards the end of the season where it gets up in the upper canopy, but it's usually kind of too late. And so I just don't put a lot of 
you know, when I'm ranking my foliar diseases, that's, that's certainly not at the top, but I think because of fungicide applications to manage disease, well, for not just to manage diseases, but just, you know, sometimes kind of the quote uh, plant health type of, of application that has, uh, you know, ended up making some or selecting out resistant individuals in some of these other pathogen populations, like within the septoria brown spot. And so we've, we see the uh, strobilurin or QOI fungicide resistance in that pathogen too. And, and I, I don't know too many farmers and places I've worked at were, you know, specifically trying to control septorial brown spots. So that may be kind of what you're getting at there a little bit. That particular disease has really been questioned over the last few years as to maybe we are losing some yield in this general region in the mid South from that. But typically, you know, I, I would agree with your statement. It, it usually makes a, a nice showy addition to the canopy later in the season. So you get, you know, mid R5, closer to R6, mm-hmm. and sometimes you can see a lot of it. Does that impact yield? I, I, I don't know that it does, but I have seen some data from some people in close states that suggest in some cases you may see a yield reduction associated with that particular organism. But I think yeah. the hard part is it's a lower canopy issue and sometimes if you find brown spot, you're also finding target spot. So is it multiple diseases that may be uh, influencing that yield reduction, or is it just one of those? Yeah, that's a good point. From there, I, I know the bulk of your work, at least when you initiated some of those projects that you did and you alluded to when you were at Illinois, and then when you moved to Kentucky, you really spearheaded some additional observations and surveys in other states looking into fungicide resistance and specifically QOI resistance within the frog eye leaf spot fungus. But from there, what else have you morphed that research into? What, what specific organisms or what particular diseases within the soybean production system are you now focused on when it comes to fungicide resistance? You're right. A good chunk of the work I've done has been with the QOI resistance with the uh, frog eye leaf spot pathogen um, we, you know, we're still working a lot with the frog eye leaf spot pathogen. Basically, that QOI resistance is kind of it's out of the cat's out of the bag. It's it's pretty much everywhere now. I think it's I don't I can't remember the number of states off the top of my head, but I know it's over twenty different states in which QOI resistance has been found. And uh, we, we mentioned North Dakota a few minutes ago. Even even up in North Dakota, that uh, they've got QOI resistance, Cercospis um, subgena that causes frog eye leaf spot. So pretty much anywhere soybeans are grown, that strain uh, that's going to be resistant um, is that they're going to be out there. So we we started looking at other fungicides, uh, Tom and Jason. Um, you know, Tom, as you know, the strobilurins or QIs are still out there, but we've kind of had a little bit of shift in uh, active ingredients that have been a little bit more important. Probably uh, good part of the reason is the QIs just don't work very well on a lot of things because of resistance now. We use a lot of triazoles um, or DMIs and SDHIs, which kind of kind of is the I would say new. They're not really a new group of fungicides, but it's it's the, the group of fungicides that's kind of being registered on soybean now. When you when you have a new product, it seems. So we're kind of focusing some of our work on those two, uh, as well as thiophenic methyl, which is which is in topsin or some generic versions of topsin, which is a different mode of action, a different group called the. Uh, Benzometazole. So we're, we're, we're kind of looking at Cercospor sogena populations that we get and looking at sensitivity to those different fungicides. So I guess one of the things that we've seen 
uh, over time is when we look at the triazoles or the DMIs that we are starting to see just a little bit of a shift, kind of a slow shift towards less sensitivity to that group of fungicides. So when you think about fungicide resistance, you got an example like with the strobilurins or QOIs, that's almost like a light switch. Like you flip the switch and that particular amino acid substitution that happens in the resistant strains of the fungus, they're, they're pretty much almost completely resistant. And, and it can happen pretty quickly um, because it's just one little single substitution that has to happen. Um, but when it comes to resistance to triazoles, that's really something that has to happen over time, over kind of repeated selection pressure. So over repeated fungicide applications over years. So when you look at that, uh, when you're trying to kind of monitor for fungicide resistance to that group of fungicides, you really have to have a, a data set that kind of spans years. And so we do uh, with the help of people like you and others that have you know, shared isolates and, and all those kind of things. So we are seeing just a kind of a, a slow shift towards the Cercospherosogena populations being just a little bit less sensitive to the triazoles. And so that's a little bit worrisome because that's kind of, I feel like the triazones are kind of our backbone of, of managing frog eye leaf spot with fungicides. I think that's, that's like one of the major act, uh, you know, classes of, of uh, fungicides you have to have to really get excellent control. And, and to kind of see that starting to fade, I mean, it, they're still effective, but it's we're starting to see that slow shift that's a little bit worrisome. Well, and I think once we started really identifying the QOI-resistant populations, there was a large shift within the basic manufacturers to develop or provide mixed modes of action fungicide products at the retail locations. And what they tended to rely on was adding in a DMI or a triazole to make that a little bit more efficacious when you made that application. So the bulk of the fungicides, you know, circa 2010 or so probably had a QOI and a DMI in them. So we've sprayed a lot of those on a lot of acres. And in a lot of cases, we managed good disease with that. And in some cases, those were just plant health applications. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we. You remember the day where where things like maybe just just straight up quadrus or straight up headline would have been applied uh, back in the I guess mid two thousands or so up to up to the early twenty tens maybe. And uh, but yeah, there was definitely a shift um, where uh, companies started developing premixed products with uh, with generally almost always with the triazole. So that was kind of the the norm. And now we're seeing. Uh, in some cases, maybe some three-way mixes that might include a QOI, an SDHI, and a triazole, or some of them may just have a triazole and SDHI. So I, I do think, um, for the most part, the, the mixes are still something we're seeing. But one thing, you know, in those, the mixes uh, of different active ingredients, that's, that's certainly, or modes of action, that's certainly one of the ways to help kind of slow down fungicide resistance, but that, that only helps when one of those, or I'm sorry, when both of those, or, or all of them, if you've got three, um, they all have to have efficacy. That means they all have to work on that target fungus population. So if you currently, if you're spraying a, a, a QI or strobilurin mixture with a triazole, it's really the triazole that's doing all the work when you're thinking about frog eye leaf spot or even some of these other foliar pathogens, since there's, there's a lot of QOI, QOI resistance in those too. So 
you know, that, that in a lot of cases that fuel is not really doing anything anymore and, uh, and just leaving it in there is just continuing to, to add that selection pressure. So when we think about, you know, using products that contain multiple active ingredients, it's really important that you use something that's, that's where both of those active ingredients still have efficacy. Uh, that's the only way that we can really use those to, to achieve really good efficacy, but also to slow down fungicide resistance as well. Sorry. No, no, you're, you're fine. I just, I was thinking, I wasn't sure if you were going to add anything in there on that statement or not. You looked like you were. No, I was conjuring up a weed control recommendation. Well, <laughs> and I, and I think you make a good point, Carl, about some of the mixed mode of action products that we have that are available, but there are other ways to go about managing some of these issues and they're not exactly easily touched on. And we probably don't do a great job talking about that. And personally, just sitting here and I think we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to evaluating new varieties. But the one thing I think you probably see a little bit more is where are we going in the future with fungicide products and active ingredients and anything coming down the pike? Do you see anything coming in the future that's going to aid in some of these resistant population issues that we're running into? Yeah, no, that's a great question. As far as like fungicide product, I only know on the things I, you know, protocols I get and things I test. But as far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of any brand new modes of actions or at least anything that's gotten in my hands yet uh, to test. Uh, of course, there, there's been some improved triazoles, some improved SDHIs, you know, that might bring along a little bit more um, efficacy, but they're still talking about, you know, still talking about the same modes of action, basically. And um, so that is a little bit worrisome. And and you're right, you know, we, th- there's other ways to manage diseases. We don't have to do that with only, and you know, applications of foliar fungicides. And so that is something that we have as plant pathologists in our back pocket where we can talk about other ways to manage these things. And one of those is a really important one is just resistant varieties. That's one of the most important basic ways to manage a disease. And, you know, as it turns out with, with frog eye leaf spot, we actually have some varieties that have really high level of resistance. And, um, and we've done some work here at Kentucky kind of looking at some, you know, varieties that differ in their susceptibility to frog eye leaf spot. And then, and then making, you know, having fungicide applications or not on those varieties. Um, Heather Kelly's program at the University of Tennessee is also another one that's, that's kind of been evaluating that. I'm sure there's others. But one of the things that, that we've seen, Tom, is when you've got a resistant variety, we, we really don't see the type of response to the fungicide on those resistant varieties that you would on a susceptible variety. So, you know, those resistant varieties are pretty effective in managing disease. And when you start thinking about integrating different types of approaches, you know, you got your crop rotation, you've got resistant varieties, you know, maybe a fungicide if you need to. Those are the types of things that are really going to help reduce that selection pressure overall from the fungicide. Uh, If we're managing these pathogen populations using other methods, then that's going to help keep these, you know, the products we currently have or maybe some products coming down the pike. Maybe that's going to help us keep those around for a longer period of time so we're not dealing with resistance. So you're exactly right. You know, I think sometimes we think or you know there's there's sort of a suggestion out there that spray first that's kind of the the mentality in some cases but 
uh, a lot of these disease management decisions um, start before you even plant a seed. And that's, you know, thinking about where you got plant soybeans, what, what kind of crop is it following, and, uh, you know, what the variety is, you know, how susceptible or resistant that particular variety is to the disease. Well, and I think we all do our best to provide those types of information, especially when it comes to frog eye, because that, mm-hmm. I think, really leads the pack when it comes to potential yield losses associated with plant diseases. That's still one, even in Mississippi, that can be, you know, not devastating, but you can take a pretty significant hit if you plant something that's susceptible and the environment turns out right. That's that's a recipe for potential disaster. Let me compliment you, Tom, um, and and those of you at Mississippi State, because I I look at published university variety testing trials out there, and I think it's always really helpful when when there's um, some uh, disease observations that are made with those trials. And I know you do a really good job with that. And I, I kind of, and of course, you know, we, you guys grow a little bit later soybeans than we do here, but, but we do have some maturity groups in common. And so I always try to publicize, um, you know, any, anywhere I can get some information on how susceptible varieties are to, you know, important diseases. I try to, I try to get that information out to our growers as well and, and use a lot of resources outside of our state to do that too. So. So I appreciate, and I'm, I know many do appreciate those ratings that, that I know you spend a lot of time on uh, out in the field. I would think a frustrating part of that, Carl, well, with the variety selection, is that environmental component to it. And I teased Tom about his disease triangle, disease pyramid, but depending on the pathogen, I mean, you can go two or three years in a row and have the correct or the incorrect environment for that pathogen to develop a disease. And you'd kind of get off in a rabbit hole, so to speak, where in my world, as long as we got moisture and the temperature is right, the weed's going to come up. Uh, and the entomologists yeah. deal with that some too, whether the insect of choice in their research shows up. So I can't even really sympathize with y'all because I know that's frustrating. And we talk about cultural control for weeds too. And, and some of them are more applicable than others. And some of them are good conversations to have this time of year. And when, then when the rubber hits the road in the springtime, they're less practical than others. But I mean, variety selection, naturally the the first box to check there is the yield potential and then yeah. a laundry list of other characteristics after that. But the, that environmental component that we deal with on a pathogen developing a disease is just, to me, very frustrating. <laughs> no, that's a good point. And, of course, you know, I think that the part of that disease triangle that we don't have any control over for the most part is, is the, the weather, right, the weather variable, the environment part. And uh, that's that's usually what makes a big difference in, in seeing, you know, either a lot of disease or not very much disease. Um, so, yeah, when a grower is thinking about varieties, yeah, I'm sure disease resistance is not the, the top notch. <laughs> it's it's going to be, you know, it's probably going to be something like yield potential. And does the herbicide resistance traits match what I'm, what you know, match my herbicide program? But I think the good thing is, at least for, for I would say, for varieties that are available, like here in Kentucky, and it, it may differ for further south. But I think um, what I've noticed is you don't have to give up those things to still get a variety that, that may have a high level of resistance to, to something like frog eye leaf spot. So I think you can, you can kind of still find pretty close to the complete package. 
And if you know you have a history of that disease, and when I say history, you really need to think about you know the last ten years or so because you could have a couple of couple of dry years in a row um, where that would prevent you from seeing much disease. So, you know, if you've had any kind of history at all, then it, it's likely that it could come back in the right year. And picking those varieties that still have those important traits, like you know, high yield uh, herbicide resistant traits that you need, but then I think you can still bring along some disease resistance as well. I think that still exists. Well, Carl, I think, you know, I really appreciate your efforts and I appreciate the time you took this morning because I think this is a pretty important topic. And, you know, honestly, we, we pretty much covered the big broad brushstrokes and left a lot of things for additional podcasts. And certainly, I mean, we've got some more information to cover moving forward in the future. So we definitely thank you for your time this morning. Well, I, I really appreciate the invitation, guys. Carl, thanks a lot, man. I, I enjoyed visiting with you. Yeah, it was fun. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. Extension.